Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. We've had an economy that never really escaped the crash of 2008. In a way, the last 10 years have been an economy on life support. Vast amounts of money pumped into the economy, record drops in interest rates, inviting everybody, business, individuals, governments, to borrow money, a, a debt-sustained situation. And after a while, you can't mount up the debt on the basis of an economy that hasn't really gotten going. And we're seeing the eventual break. You know, the, the capitalist system has a downturn every four to seven years. It's had that for, for centuries. And the last big downturn was 2008 and nine. So if you do four and seven, you add it to nine, we're due for one. And every major uh, stock market observer, bank and so on predicts that we're having a downturn. So it's really only a question of exactly when. And the stock market anticipates this. And so we're having, in a way, economic chickens coming home to roost. And the notion that it's just the Fed's policy that explains this is really the kind of remark that would get a student a very low grade in any economics course. Having been in an argument with Prager University, Prager, like how do they even put university in their title is beyond me. But you know, they quote tweeted me last week on Twitter with some nonsense uh, because I had called them out on this ridiculous poll they had. It was um, freedom versus communism. And I was just like, that's not, no, that's not a poll. You're asking the wrong question. That makes zero sense. So, of course, so then they, I have no idea why they decided to respond to me versus some of the other people that were coming at them, but they did. But it ended up being just very eye-opening in the sense that you realize, wow, this is the problem. The American public is not being given correct information about any of this stuff. And they absolutely are just believing what they're being told by people like PragerU. It's just frightful. I think that social media offers a kind of a hopeful thing here uh, because, you know, social media offers you a chance to interact and comment with this material yeah. in a much different way than was possible That's in the true. past. And, in, you know, it's like the old mindset for content is broadcast, right? Just broadcast your idea. And there's no discussion. There's no debate. I mean, this is, this is the TV model, right? That we, right. we're familiar with because TV has been around for decades, right? Social media is different, right? Social media offers you, oh, now we're in dialogue, right? Now we're, yeah. you have people questioning you, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> what I see about PragerU is that they often have to delete their tweets because yeah. they, get, they get bullied, you know? I mean... Like people are like, that's totally illogical, you know? Like, right. I mean, this happened to a, a mutual of mine on Twitter recently, uh, you know, and he put it out there to his followers and he said, he said like, look, PragerU has singled me out, you know? And like, yeah. you know, he, he said something like, why do, why do people, you know, not want to be productive or not want to go to work? Does it have anything to do with capitalism, right? I mean, like, which I think right. is a very fair kind of point, you know? And hundred percent. You know, so, you know, like, and they, they want to put like a very different conservative type of spin on this, right? And, you know, I think it's just, you don't have the option of doing that so much when people will question you and people yeah. will, will say it. So I think that's a little more hopeful. I mean, you know, like a lot of times people say on social media or on Twitter or whatever, they say, oh, what a waste of time. You know, you should be doing your work in real life, uh, which, yes, of course, you should be doing your work in real life. But, you know, social media is also real life and it affects how we think about things. I it agree. is media. It's media and it has all the power of media. So, 
you know, there's a reason why, you know, outfits like PragerU, I mean, these are, these are ideologically motivated, uh, yes. you know, enterprises. And, That's right. you know, you have to, when, when you have a strong ideological core, you have to be careful not to overstep. You have to be careful not to be like, well, you know, to, to not to, I don't know what, like, like not be human, you know, like turn right. into some kind of robot that like never listens yeah. to others. I mean, you know, when you start doing that, you'll lose credibility, you know, and people yeah. say like, well, I don't, even if I agree with you, I don't like you, you know, like, I, so I, I think it's important that, you know, that's, that's actually good. You know, that's humanizing. No, uh, it is good. And, you know, people often say, well, don't feed the trolls. I'm like, well, you know, sometimes I respond to these folks in these threads, not, not because they're not trolling. I'm sure that they are. But, but for the benefit of other folks that might read the entire thread, maybe they're going to read what I'm saying and have a counter to what this nonsense is. And it might get them to think about something like this. In one of these threads back and forth with PragerU, one guy was, um, you know, saying China bad, China this, China that. And I'm like, you, okay, so I said, you think capitalism is good? And he's like, capitalism is freedom. And I'm like, well, China is capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> which well, of course he could not respond to, but you know, again, was that guy trolling? Yes, he was, but perhaps having that conversation, having that dialogue will get more people to really sort of question what they're being spoon fed by uh, what, I, what I I'm going to refer to again as the platonomy because PragerU is upholding the platonomy, right? This is a group of people, it's wealthy at least, it's uh, large corporations. They control the government, they have a bot Congress because of the donations and the quid pro quo. They've been able to legislate to their benefits is the 70s going forward. I mean, so all of right. and the media is definitely part of that, you know, the things they've done in the media. So, so yeah. we have to have sort of a, um, I think it's important to have a conversation against these folks if we are going to change the hearts and minds of Americans and improve things. So. Well, it's, it's, it's yeoman's work and I appreciate you doing it. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to go in and have, you know, even a kind of low level of, of digital conflict. It's still conflict, you know, it's yeah. still, you know, it still makes your heart race. It's still, you yeah. know, it still makes you think like, well, how do I respond to this? Right. I mean, it's, it causes a certain amount of stress. So, huh. you know, I appreciate your service on that. And, uh, you know, I think on, on the question of, of China, there's so much going on there, you know, there's, I, I there's, know, but you know, whether, whether, how do we categorize China is what is, how do we categorize China? I think is a very fair question at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also the question of the U S empire and, you know, whether it's another capitalist nation that challenges that empire or not hardly matters. Right. I mean, right. from the perspective of the imperialist powers, they don't want competition, right? They want to be able That's to right. have their agenda That's everywhere right. in the world. And anyone who is outside of that, even if they're moving kind of oblique to it or, you know, like yeah. in a similar direction, that still will not be tolerated. I mean, so for a long time, China was tolerated because China was, I mean, that was the place you outsourced to, right? Uh, That's right. From the NAFTA era onwards, right? right? And accelerating into the first decade of the 2000s. It's only in the last maybe three, two or three years, really, that China started being seen as an increasing threat. I mean, right. so that's, that's right. very new, you know, I mean, China was fitting in quite well to the kind of US led empire that right. that role and whether it was communist or not, 
you know, people. I mean, it yes, didn't there's a lot because of because American companies were able to benefit. It's all about American yeah. business interests benefiting when it comes to this country. So, yeah, you're correct. Well, China has very much. I mean, you know, they've industrialized in a very smart manner, right? Which is they move from producing low value to producing high value, and they're doing that with astonishing rapidity, right? I mean, they they are. You know, I mean, if we just look at like one of the highest value type products to produce is electronics, you know, uh, and China has just been moving up the ranks. I mean, just in the last 15 years, uh, very, very swiftly uh, yeah. and is now, you know, the number one exporter of electronics. That's amazing. Right. Because and, and by the way, that doesn't happen without a unified national economic policy, That's which right. is rare to see. Uh, typically, you don't see that under, you know, a pure, a pure capitalism, right? Because that's a form of economic planning, right? Uh, capitalism is a pretty decentralized system where, you know, the electronics manufacturers compete with each other, like, like all right. producers can be with each other. Nobody's really keeping an eye on what's happening overall with society's resources. It just somehow works out, or at least that's the mythology of capitalism. In order to rapidly industrialize, you need a plan. I mean, it's yeah, like you need a anything, planned economy, right? a command economy of some sort. Well, if you want it to happen quickly, I mean, if you want it to happen mm -hmm. over several hundred years, uh, as it did in Britain, then maybe you don't need that planning. But, you know, Britain was also first. So right. they didn't have other powers, you know, established manufacturing powers, you know, be able to undercut their prices, right? They were the ones doing that, right? So right, right. that's, you know, that's a very, it's a very different environment. Um, if you want that to happen, you need some national policy, you need some control. Now, I think the question of whether it's capitalist or socialist is, is it, you know, again, my definition is like, are, are we, is there an avowed goal to create a classless society that is based on collectivity, based on sharing, that uplifts the very poorest and most vulnerable, right? Because I mean, that's kind of top priority, right? I mean, the rich are doing fine. You've got to uplift the poor, right? So is that the case in China? I mean, you know, people people differ on this, but I think you'd have to say, you'd have to at least say a qualified yes, right? I mean, China has lifted something. Do you think it still does? People. I think it used to. I'm not convinced at this point. There's, a, there's becoming more poverty um, in the countryside yeah. again. I, I mean, think okay, that let me they ask have... you this, because this is the thing about China that always fascinates me. Uh, you're right about a certain aspect of the economy is planned as a command economy, right? Which is traditionally what is what is thought of if you're teaching international relations. That's traditionally what's thought of as communist, right? But when they opened up their markets, letting in some of this free market ideology, some of this capitalist um, stuff, part of the part of their economy did change. So would you say at this point, just from a purely logical perspective, that it's a mixed economy? How would you? How would you classify China right now? Because it's not typical and you can't really fit it into any one box. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the problem with socialism, broadly speaking, is that socialism is not a class process. It, it, it might involve many different class processes. Uh -huh. It's a, because it's a, it's a transitionary state. So, okay. uh, you know, I, I would say if you want to call it capitalism, it's different from other historical forms of capitalism. Okay. Um, you know, historical forms of capitalism have a very heavy reliance on slavery and imperialism. And China does not have that, right? That's I mean, fair. China, 
China is a neo-colonial territory of, of Britain. You know, Britain was never <laughs> able right. to fully conquer China, but they certainly ran China. You know, they, they got the policies that they wanted. They, they forced China open to right. trade. They, you know, they took control of Hong Kong, right? They, so, you know, they're a neo-colony, but they managed to throw off that colonial yoke. And, you know, they went through this period of chaos and the warlord years and all this stuff, right? But, but then they, they started a real, you know, cohesive socialist plan of, of development of the economy. Um, now, it, 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 you're right to say that it, it doesn't seem like what we think of, right? It, it's, it, it's sort of confounding, like with socialism yeah. and billionaires. I mean, that's, that is confounding. And I think that, you know, I mean, what, the term that they use, right? The umbrella term in China is socialism with Chinese characteristics, right? So yeah. they, and I think this is actually kind of important because it acknowledges, okay, yeah. it acknowledges that different countries are different and that they have a different history and that, that there isn't, I mean, no matter what your philosophy is, you can't just apply it wholesale, right? I mean, you have right. to kind of take account of the realities on the ground and like, like what does this particular society need at this particular time? And, and how do we advance toward this? I will say that I think that um, there is a very strong influence of people who, you know, in the government at the very highest levels who are, first of all, highly educated about Marxism and class yeah. and highly committed to ab abolishing exploitation in pretty much the manner that I've been talking about. So whether they're doing it, whether they're, whether they're actually making progress, I mean, we could argue about all manner of that, but I, I think that it would be kind of weird to say that if you're going to call it capitalism, it would be weird to say it's the same as other forms. You'd have to at least say it's a unique form yeah. That, oh, I, oh, I definitely agree with that. It's interesting to me because I think, I think, I don't know when, when, I don't know when you would pinpoint that change, but I think that they were definitely in that socialist um, space for a long time. And it wasn't until, you know, what, 10 years ago when things started to really change. And I guess my main concern was, are they going to be like Russia where they go into this oligarchy that's um, being driven by massive income inequality about corruption at the top? Like, it doesn't seem that that's been the case. So they seem to have right. been managing a good balance here. So it's interesting to watch, but I think the, the reason the United States is so threatened by China at this point is, is this thing you're talking about. It isn't because they're communist or socialist or capitalist per se, it's because they're very good at what they do and they can no longer be exploited by American business interests in the same way that they could 20 years ago. That's the problem. Yeah, and they're starting to actually compete you know, and, and they are very cleverly, very smartly moving up the value chain. And, and I think people are seeing, you know, China's growth, they're seeing China's GDP, you know, China didn't really, I mean, trade collapsed during the Great Recession. So, you know, this is the most devastating single blow to global trade since the Great, Rece uh, since the Great Depression in the 1930s. So, okay, everyone's damaged by that, including China. But China is less damaged by the Great Recession than the United States is, arguably. I mean, they don't have, you know, um, they have a lot of tensions and struggles and contradictions. They have, they, they do have rising inequality. They have all of this, all of the struggles of urbanization. They have an enormous population. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of tensions there, you know, uh, 
But I think as long as the Communist Party is still in charge, we're not going to see a kind of descent into chaos. I mean, you know, the thing okay. that really strikes me about the Soviet Union uh, as they went through, I mean, what I would consider to be a, a coup with, you know, an, uh, with internal support um, is that their GDP per capita declined uh, hugely I mean, yeah. by like 40%. So, I mean, that's, and, and all of the, you know, social welfare indicators immediately got much worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't it was see bad. that happening in China. Um, I mean, you know, the, the date that people look at is, is the reforms 1979, you know, it's like, it's like Deng Xiaoping, you know, like that, that's the, that's the kind of moment, you know, where people associate with like, okay, that's the end of the Maoist period, right? Mao has, has died a few years before, right? And, and so now, okay, we're in a transition to a new thing. Uh, and it's accompanied by then much greater openness and much more of a, of a focus on trade and especially exports, which really begins to happen in the late 90s and then right. in the early 2000s. So they have this kind of maybe 25-year period of really being part of the global economy on, on a much different scale than they ever were during the Maoist right. period, where they were pretty close, you know, like they needed certain things from outside, but apart from that, they weren't really, they were producing mostly for their own market, you know. Um, that's very different than China now. And I think it, it brings different struggles and contradictions. I think in a lot of ways, culturally, it looks like capitalism because there's a lot of hustle in China. There's a lot of like, you know, that kind of that hunger, you know, to like succeed and to, you know, uh, that, that um, even like materialism, you know, like these are things that right. we associate culturally with capitalism. And, uh, but I would say, again, it has a slightly different spin, you know, in, mm -hmm. in China um, or that China is now a global player and, uh, you know, does trade agreements and even loans to other countries or, you know, invest in infrastructure and all these things. And people say like, well, is that, is that imperialism? Is China imperialist? Um, and so that, that sort of stretches our, you know, definition of that too, right? Uh, yeah. Is imperialism anytime you get involved with another country? Uh, what if it's mutually beneficial? I mean, you know, the imperialism of the past sucked resources out of the colonies, right? I mean, it mm -hmm. was not at all mutually beneficial. It was, it was a, a massive drain uh, and, and then a permanent underdevelopment of those countries. Right. That doesn't seem to be what China's doing. They, they, they seem to be very concerned. Uh, I mean, my reading of it, right? They're, uh, about the, the countries that they're, that they're partnering with, they don't, they're, they're certainly not conquering, right? I mean, that, that's, no. that's the right. pattern of the past. Um, so well, let me so, ask you this. Do you think it's possible for China to have a wealthy upper class that's, that's developing the way it does now without that coming at the expense of lower cap classes or more income inequality? Is that possible? I don't know. You know, um, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think it, it, we'll see. Uh, there is going to be a point, And, you know, they do have these debates internally in China. Um, I you know, it's hard for me to exactly participate in that. I don't speak the language, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I can kind of observe, right? I mean, right, Twitter right. is actually kind of helpful for this because you get to interact with people, you know, from all over the world, right? And, and you get to kind of hear a range of opinions about this. Um, so, you know, from what I gather, there is a lot of debate over this, right? Like how much inequality is acceptable, right? In, in the service of, industrialization and, and right. moving up that value chain in particularly, right? Because 
there's layers to industrialization, right? I mean, like, you know, if, if you're an oil producing nation, uh, you know, you can, you can make a lot of money from that, right? But you're pretty low on the value chain, right? I mean, you're, you know, that's, it's sometimes it's called the resource curse, you know, you're, you've got a resource that a lot of people want, but if you don't develop the rest of your economy, then, you know, you're going to have problems ultimately, right? You, you're right. going to, you're going to have some difficulty. So China is trying not to do that. They don't want to get locked into a low value resource production role. Um, and, you know, this is, it, it's just interesting. Okay. That means that there's going to be some fortunes that are made. And that means that, you know, there's, there, there, you know, like if you ask me, is there the taking of the surplus in China by those that don't produce? The answer is absolutely right. There is no question. Right. So, and, and then if you went further and said, well, is that exploitation the basis of that society? I would still have to say, yes, it is. Right. Okay. So on that level, but I would also say the same for the Soviets, right? With the one big exception is the collectivization of agriculture. This is a, this is a place where- Well, the yeah, that's important, the agriculture, sure. Did, did appropriate. So, uh, however, that's, you know, surrounded by contradictions. So again, you know, no one has figured out how to abolish exploitation. And if there's, if there's exploitation, there's gonna be certain well-known dynamics with that, right? Like if you're appropriating surplus, you probably want more surplus, and how do you get that? Well, you lower wages, you increase the, the intensity of the labor process, right? You try to expand the, the share of your market. I mean, this is, this is capitalism 101. Yeah. It's ironic that Marx is one of the best uh, to, to describe this, you know, an yeah. anti-capitalist, you know? That's right. Um, but, you know, that, that's how you do it, right? So, okay, there, then there's gonna be an inherent pressure towards making the society more unequal, right? And does that take place in China? I think it does, yeah. Yeah, I but think it does. It's tempered by this very strong commitment uh, to, you know, uplifting the most vulnerable. And I think that actually is quite strong in China. I think that they, you know, they, they do have national goals for the country that are about the well-being of the, of the entire society. Um, right. But there's sacrifice along the way. So, I, you know, I don't know the answer to, to this. I don't think anybody does, you know? No, I, don't, I agree. But I don't think anybody does either. I do think it's a question we should ask, though. And I also think it's important for just the discussion of human nature, right? Is it possible to entirely eliminate inequality? The answer to that is no. I don't think it's possible. I'm, you know, I'm going to go back to John Rawls for a second when he talks about uh, the, the various degrees of social starting places, he uses the term social starting place, right? So whether right. you're more intelligent or less intelligent, wealthy family, not wealthy family, uh, male or female, what race you are, you know, there's so many factors that play into that that are completely uncontrollable, right? So, and all of those give sway to, to whether there's equality or not. There's just no two ways about it. So his way of adjusting that, of course, is to say, you know, his thought experiment, about, experience, uh, thought experiment about the veil of ignorance, right? So if you were behind this veil of ignorance, you didn't know who you were gonna be in the society, what rules would you form that would be just, right? So you know, the idea being that you're going to accept the lowest of the best, right? Like nobody wants to fall be below this particular bar right here. And I think that's right. sort of about right. I don't, I don't know that there's a better way to go about that just because of what, because of all of these different factors that have to be, to have to be figured in, right? <laughs> if you didn't know who you were going to be in life, would you 
allow their, would you say society should be uh, racist, uh, misogynist, exactly. homophobic, et cetera? No, no. No, the answer is I mean, flat it, out no, exactly, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, and I also think the same is true when it comes to income, right? What is the lowest thing that you're going to accept? If you're going to be the guy that's making the least amount of money doing the hardest kind of work, what are the parameters to that? And <laughs> Would you changes. accept a 10% probability that you have a decent life? Right. Exactly. Anyway, so it, you know, it is what it is. I think, um, but I think he made an interesting argument for, for these things and how to address that. So it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Um, I want to shift gears and talk about uh, modern monetary theory, uh, which is sort of overtaking the left right now. And um, what are your thoughts on MMT? I'm not a big fan of MMT. Um, okay. I think that, I, I think that it, it has a, um, I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of the general function that I think it's serving right now, it, which I think is an argument against austerity. Um, and I agree with that. I, I think, you know, austerity is, you know, this is like cutting budgets and usually for, you know, the things that help the poorest and most vulnerable, you know, like I, I'm and, and it, because we say we don't have the money, I mean, uh, that's ludicrous, first of all, right? I mean, like the governments have immense resources. It's just a matter of how they choose to use them. Uh, they well, they want some excuse to say that they should, you know, uh, free up money to then give to the wealthier. Uh, you know, to me, that's nonsense. But, you know, I, I don't think you need a modern monetary theory in order to make that case. Uh, and I, I think okay, that it I has some, I think it has some problems of its own, um, but, uh, so how, how would I summarize this? Um, you know, the, the theory itself, I mean, like it's usually interpreted to say, look, we don't need to worry about deficits and we don't need to worry about debt because, uh, every nation, uh, you know, in the fiat monetary era, every nation is a sovereign power and can, you know, create, uh, as much money as they'd like, uh, you know, um, I think that this overlooks some important things. It, it, it's a little bit like saying every nation has the same power as the United States does, right? The United States has the global monetary, you know, reserve currency, right? So right. that gives the United States a huge amount of power. I mean, uh, every central bank in the world has to have some, some US dollars, right? All, every, every country that wants to stabilize their currency and hence their, their trade vis-a-vis uh, -vis other countries has to accumulate U.S. dollars. That's not the case for any other nation. Um, and I think it's kind of disingenuous to, to act like, well, right. you know, oh, there'd be no consequences of a, of a country running huge deficits. There are usually are quite negative consequences. Uh, so I, I just, there's a part of it that I don't think is true. And I don't think that it's all that necessary in order to, because MMT is kind of like, a part of, or it's embedded, usually it's embedded within a broader Keynesian theory, you know, which basically says, I mean, my reading of Keynesian theory is Keynes argued that the best form of capitalism uh, is a managed form of capitalism and that the government should regulate prices, interest rates, investment, all of these different variables in order to prevent catastrophic uh, episodes like the Great Depression, uh, to prevent financial panics, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, that the government needs to be, you know, powerful enough, large enough, 
that we need the right statistics and we need smart, benevolent leaders right. uh, that can you know, produce a good form of capitalism. I personally do not believe in a good form of capitalism. I, I think it's a little bit like saying, uh, you know, what would be like a really well-regulated and reformed version of slavery? I don't think such a thing exists. I, I'm, I you know, I, I think slavery is intrinsically immoral, uh, but I think the same about capitalism. So I'm not a Keynesian in that sense, but I obviously I've studied this. I mean, this is a major uh, thrust of economic theory over the last nearly hundred years. Um, so I, I don't, I don't see MMT, which offers a slightly different twist on this, a slightly different reading of the history and functionality of money. I don't see that as all that necessary in order to make the Keynesian argument. Um, I mean, Keynes says in the general theory, uh, says the two big problems of capitalism are number one, there's a failure to, to, uh, to have sufficient aggregate demand, right? So spending sometimes becomes too low and that's the Keynesian explanation for, for recessions. Right. And number two is the inequality. I, I think that Keynesians traditionally care a lot more about number one, uh, managing the business cycle than they do about number two. Although there are, you know, there are Keynesians certainly on the left. Uh, it's, it's, I think a minority position within the Keynesian field. Um, so, you know, I, I'm like, well, how do you, if you really care about inequality, what do you do, right? I mean, you, you don't say the government should just tinker a little bit with, yeah. you know, I mean, but, you know, again, I, that's, that's just, that's simply not where I come at it from, right? I'm not, I don't have that reformist perspective. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, I mean, lots of people do. So I, I, I yeah, recognize I it's, a, it's a valid perspective. It's just not. Uh, I'm I'm probably not the best to to uh, you know like to describe it because it's not my actual position. Uh, no, fair enough. You know, and I, I have I have spoken with some MMT uh, economists. Um, the other thing that they say that I'm always sort of um, wondering about, which which I think is problematic, is this idea that because a government can and because the government can print as much money as it wants. And let me stop and say this: I do agree with the austerity thing. I think it's ridiculous about that. No, we shouldn't be concerned about that at all what you were saying earlier, but also they have this idea that, um, that there aren't any government funded uh, policies per se that are driven by tax dollars. And I just kind of go, well, you know, I understand that you're making that argument from a the based on your theory itself, right? Because of all of these other things, but your average Joe, when he looks at his paycheck says, well, SSDI, this, they see that they're paying taxes into social security and that they're going to get a check later on from that. So, it's sort of the practical versus the theoretical. And I don't think they really um, do a good job explaining that per se. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you end, up, you end up in a situation that's not that far from Dick Cheney, who famously said, debt doesn't matter. I mean, you know, and he said that to mean, hey, don't, don't criticize me about spending in, uh, on wars in Iraq right. and Afghanistan. They all just pick you know? and choose what they want to spend it on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm like, well, if you if you're ending up the same place as Dick Cheney, maybe that should be a concern. You know, uh, I think debt does matter. I mean, we like we're okay, in a situation. All right. We, yeah, we're in this situation in this country uh, where the debt is so high. We have such a structural imbalance that we will at some point. I mean, the the you know the U.S. the U.S. Treasury market is absorbing an 
a, a huge proportion of the global savings pool. Um, you know, this, so at some point this has to come to balance, right? How does it come to balance, right? Who pays the price for that, right? Is it the bondholders? Like, will, will the, I mean, you know, like, it, does this threaten the U.S. on some existential level? No, right? So the it MMT doesn't. theorists are correct on that level. Yeah. But, you know, who is that threat? Well, everyone who owns the bonds, I mean, is at risk that I see. I the see. bonds so... could be significantly devalued. I mean, that's, and that's the traditional historical way to get off the hook for this kind of debt is to inflate your way out of it. Right. Now, I think the U.S. would like to do that slowly enough. They would like to do that in a controlled manner, if possible. But that's not the way things are heading. You know, you can't add one to three trillion dollars a year to the debt. I mean, and, and have zero consequences for anybody. You know, there are going okay. to be consequences. I so I think the question is, who bears that, right? Uh, and, you know, the traditional pattern of who bears the cost is... Well, the least the connected, the most vulnerable, the mo yeah, the most, like, yeah, I mean, like, well, so in your mind, just to clarify, um, yeah. just to clarify, so your, your concern is much more broad than what their discussion is because the debt doesn't affect those in the United States per se, because again, they're the reserve, they're the reserve, uh, uh, monetary currency, but you're saying like, it does affect developing nations and other folks in an adverse way. And there's no getting around that. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, um, not exactly. I, okay. I'd say, I, so if we, if we, I, I'd say that there's a significant risk of, of currency depreciation in order to reduce the real value of that debt moving forward. Because, you know, once the, I mean, once the debt to GDP ratio uh, becomes high, I mean, it's quite high, right? I mean, by historical standards, um, just in terms of the absolute magnitude of the debt, um, it's basically, it reaches a certain level where it's no longer really payable. Um, I mean, the last time the debt to GDP ratio was as high, wasn't even quite as high as it is now, was World War II. The way that the United States, and then it declined after that. Uh, and the reason it declined is because the United States went into a, a very strong period of economic growth. And the economic growth was faster than the growth in the debt. Um, I think that is an extremely remote possibility now. I don't think that we're on the edge of some kind of decades-long massive expansion. Um, but what does seem to be happening is that the debt is growing much faster uh, than any other economic variable. And I just, I see, I look at that and say, that's not sustainable. And there's only a few ways uh, that we could back off from that. One is the austerity path, right? Um, we could massively reduce government spending, and you'd also have to increase taxes. The reason that nobody wants to do that, of course, is because both of those things are hugely politically unpopular. Mm -hmm. Both of them would cause a severe recession. I mean, depending on how, how quickly it was done and whatever else, but if you withdraw that one to $3 trillion a year uh, in spending from the economy, you are going to hurt economic growth. That's that's larger than the total amount of economic growth in the United States. I mean, that's something to consider, right? Like that when the economy was strong, um, that the total amount of just the difference between in real terms, right? The year before GDP and this year is less than the amount of government borrowing. I mean, that tells you something, right? That that government borrowing is massively propping up the economy, right? Um, 
And so if you move into austerity, you're going to tank the economy. That's, that's quite clear. Um, so, okay, well, that's, but that's one possibility. Well, what's another possibility? Well, again, the thing that states have done traditionally is they're like, well, we don't want to do austerity necessarily, but we can't pay the debt either. So we could repudiate it, which uh, that's not good, right? I mean, you know, we, and the United States is never going to do that. Um, that's off the table. We're not going to say to, our, to people, hey, we can't pay you back. What we're going to do almost certainly, I don't think we're going to do austerity either. What we're going to do is we're just going to continue what we've been doing, which is massively expanding the debt, right? Um, but at some point, this is going to uh, depreciate the currency. I mean, there's just, I, don't, I just don't think there's any way around that, right? It already has been. Um, and so bondholders are then having to deal with negative, negative returns in, in a right. real sense. You know what I'm saying, right? If no, I do know what you're saying. So you're saying that we have to keep the value of the dollar low to service the debt, because if it's not, we can't service the debt. You get into that. Yeah. Well, and then we'd have to not only keep it low, but make it lower, uh, you know, right. depreciate. In order, because now we're expanding the debt. So, but let me ask yeah. you this, um, just to play devil's advocate, um, the MMT folks would say to that, well, you're thinking in terms of traditional economics and that's the problem. Why does GDP have to be the metric? Why does this, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> how, well, am I, I'm not wrong on this though because I've had these conversations. So how, I mean, does it really, so you're No, you're right. That's what they'd say. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not laughing because of what you're saying. I just, I no, think I it's funny. So, I mean, I tried, you know, there's some stuff that I buy and some stuff that I don't, to be fair. Uh, but it seems to me that we're still trying to function in a real world where the practical exists. And I don't see how you just blow up the entire system and say none of it matters without there being repercussions, I guess, is what I'm getting at. That's the that's like trying to yeah. square the circle, right? Theoretically, I might agree with a lot of what they have to say, right? But But then there's the real life application. And I'm not really seeing how that works out entirely, even though I might respect certain aspects of what, like, I, I mean, I get what she's saying about the debt. Like, you know what, they print money whenever they want to do quantitative easing for the banksters, right? So why should we stop when it comes to actually bailing out the American people? I mean, I think those are really um, compelling arguments because this is true. But at the same time, where, where are the uh, constraints on that? And, and is it possible that they do eventually affect other folks adversely? I think the answer is also yes to that. I don't know. It's yeah. an interesting debate to have. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, I, what I'm, so a lot of my training is in, in theory, you know, so I, I, I have a lot going on there that I'm, and I'm trying not to get into like the most detailed version of that, right? But, um, you know, there's, because there's different levels, right? There's yeah. like the does the theory make sense on a kind of logical or coherent or historical level? Uh, and then there's the question of like, well, what, what might repercussions be? You know, I mean, even if you believe in a theory, you might be concerned about certain of the repercussions, you know, and right. it's, it's a different issue, you know, like what are the practical consequences? Um, right. I think that to be honest, we have to kind of admit that nobody really knows what's going to happen. You know, that, that um, we are under a new, monetary regime that that's the case right that that regime you know the, the world enters the fiat monetary era with the Bretton Woods system you know that's right um, which is when we went off the gold standard so people know what that is 
Yeah, it's like, I mean, you know, what they call Bretton Woods too. you know, the Bretton Woods one, you know, the right after World War Two, right. establishes the international gold standard. Uh, but when that system ends under Nixon, uh, 1971, right, we, we're now in a whole different world, right? I yeah. mean, the, the world is, is, you know, the global currencies are pegged to the dollar. That's right. But the dollar's free pegged traded. to nothing. They're traded. Yeah. So we're, we're instantly off of anything that had any real value. And you know, a few right. decades have passed between the, all of the monetary, you know, chicanery of the 1930s, you know, where, where Britain, you know, promised to never devalue the pound, and then they did devalue it, and they, I mean, they socked it to all their bondholders. They instantly took a huge haircut on what they owned, uh, which, again, I mean, that's why I'm saying this is the traditional way of getting off the hook of debt. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard right. to imagine that the United States would not, I mean, you know, countries have been issuing bonds for about 400 years. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a long enough history so that we have examples of countries becoming heavily indebted. And then what do they do about it? And that is almost invariably what they do. So, I mean, yeah, okay, things are different now. We're in a fiat monetary system, but how different are they, right? I mean, does that mm -hmm. mean that the entire history of money doesn't matter? I mean, I'm going to be honest, I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect yeah. the answer is no. <laughs> I suspect yeah, no. that history weighs more heavily than we might like to think. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I hear that. So it also sounds to me like <clears throat> it's a discussion of whether we want reform of the current capitalist system or whether we want something entirely new. So in that regards, is there a tension that exists between Marxism and MMT? Um, you know, Marxism has had less to say about monetary theory uh, than, um, than Keynesian economics. I mean, I think the, the most developed uh, monetary theory comes from within Keynesian economics, which, you know, offers a lot more explanation, particularly, and I mean, this is strange, but of the fiat monetary system, that's odd because when Keynes was alive and when Keynes was writing, that system was, you know, not really used except for occasionally, you know, like, I mean, there had been different experiments with having money with no basis, but they, they all ended in failure, you know? I mean, yeah. you have like France under John Law and things like this. I mean, this is a, their finance ministers run out of the country and destroys the currency. And, you know, I mean, so these are failures, right? Uh, so for Keynes to offer a very cogent explanation of how money can function and how can it work, um, I, I don't think Marxism has as well developed a notion of money, um, but what what Marxism is a different area of focus, right? It's not it's not about the workings of the capitalist financial system exactly. It's about how do these value flows take place and how, how we make sense of that. Right. You know, for whose benefit is it? Right. Marx himself doesn't really describe the financial system. You know, he's interested right. in it, right? He has some things to say about it, but. You know, it's it's uh, figures like Hilferding who come later with the finance capital, and you know um, there have been, there's been some good work in the Marxist tradition later on on that, but I think the focus has not really been on on money, and so mm -hmm. the question of like how should money and banking be structured, I think that the socialist countries have been more influenced by the Keynesians on this. Yeah. Uh, than they have by anything in Marxism. And, um, you know, like when we look at like, how does China uh, manage its currency? How does it manage its central bank? Well, they do that in a pretty traditional 
Keynesian fashion, right? I mean, they, um, they do that in a way that's not very different from other nations. Um, they like to keep a very stable value of the, of the renminbi. Um, they, you know, that's important for, they recognize the importance of that. They have a huge sovereign wealth fund, right? The, um, they manage that very carefully. It's, you know, they have a lot of, of uh, U.S. denominated debt uh, there. Um, so, you know, what, I think that's a, actually an, a, a good place that Marxism could use some development uh, mm -hmm. in terms of some theoretical development, because how is money and finance related to right. the class structure and related to exploitation? Um, you know, that'd be a good area to, to uh, explore and develop. And, you know, perhaps uh, that's an area that I'm interested in. So you'll, perhaps you'll see something from me on that in the future. Okay. Excellent. I think, uh, no, I think it's something that we should explore, definitely. Um, so that's what I have for you today. If you have any parting words uh, for the listeners, let me know what those are. Well, uh, what, a, what a great uh, conversation uh, that we've had here. And I appreciate so much you having me on. Absolutely. Um, and also, what is your Twitter handle if folks want to uh, follow, you, follow you on Twitter? I want to make sure that they have that. Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's just my name, which is it, so twitter.com slash Asatar Bear. Okay, awesome. 